pray that you'd give us ears to hear today, eyes to see, minds to comprehend, hearts with fertile soil, feet that want to run with obedience, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you turn my microphone down just a little bit, please? So we are in Revelation chapter 2. Now, the next two chapters of Revelation address the seven churches that John mentioned in chapter 1. All of these churches are different in their own unique way. And John will give an evaluation, an exhortation, and a promise to each of these churches. Now, the unique thing about these churches is, as we've mentioned a couple weeks ago, that the book of Revelation, there's many people who interpret it differently. Um, there's also different perspectives of how to interpret the seven churches. So, I guess the three, three ways would be, these letters can be viewed prophetically. So these churches represent different stages of the church over the last 2,000 years. The church at Ephesus represents the time period between the day of Pentecost and 100 A.D. This was a time of the great expansion for the early church. It also was a time when some began to lose zeal and their fervency. So it can be interpreted prophetically. It can also be viewed practically. These letters were sent to a literal, real congregation that was functioning at the close of the first century. While they were written to real church, uh, while the, uh, they were written to real churches existing in that day, they still speak to the church that is in existence today. So these letters were written to a specific church at a specific time but they also speak to you and I today. These letters can be viewed personally. These letters speak to congregations, but we should also be mindful that the Lord has a word for individuals today. God has a word for you and I today through the book of Revelation. He has something to say to you and me about our relationship with him. So that's exciting, isn't it? How many of you guys came to church today expecting that God's going to move? Well, I'm reading the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation says this, whoever reads the words of the book of Revelation will be blessed, but not also whoever reads the words, but also who hears the words can be blessed. So if you guys hear the words of the book of Revelation today, what are you going to be? Blessed. And then guess what? It also says this, those who obey the words. So I have the opportunity, and actually you have the opportunity, because you can read these words to your coworkers. You can read these words to your neighbors. You can read these words to your family. You can read these words out loud, right? So all three of us have blessings on blessings on blessings that we can receive. And how many of y'all just want a little bit of a blessing? I want a lot of bit of a blessing. So I'm going to read them. I'm going to hear them, and I'm going to try to be obedient to them. Nevertheless, we need to hear today's message prophetically, practically, and personally. 
These letters will provide each church important insight to their condition as a body. Again, the seven churches speak to you and I today. So they should challenge us to look at our own lives to see what we may possess. So the first church that John addresses is the church in Ephesus. At the time of John's writing, Ephesus was an important seaport city of the Roman province of Asia. Ephesus was famous for its temple of Artemis or Diana in Latin. It had 425, it was a 425 foot long by 220 foot wide with each side having 120 columns donated by a king. And this was known as one of the seven wonders of the world. You can find that in Acts chapter 19. <clears throat> and if you want to know more about this, you can go to our website at uh, www.mcf-online.com and you can search the series on Acts and then go to Acts chapter 19 and then you will hear a longer description about Diana and everything else and Artemis. <clears throat> but Artemis was highly valued in the city for both religious and commercial reasons, right? Artemis was the virgin goddess. She was um, also considered a Jezebel. Now, what happened at Diana or Artemis was many occult practices. Are you guys familiar with the occult? Any of you guys in here? So the occult would be, um, I guess, devil worshipers who believe that Lucifer is king, that he is God, and that he has rule and reign. And there are certain practices that the occult will participate in to receive greater authority. So we will not go into um, those today. But um, to receive authority from the demons or from the devil, certain practices such as sacrifices, spells, certain sexual acts, or mixing blood and certain things would end up happening. So here at Artemis, those things would take place. Now that was really unique because while these things are taking place, Paul has also preached the gospel very clearly. And Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus preaching the gospel clearly. And even Ephesus had a bunch of success hearing, receiving, and being obedient in the gospel that they were hearing. So, um, Ephesus, or people of Ephesus, highly valued this occult Artemis. Uh, we know because in um, Acts chapter 19, verses 24 through 41, the city rioted. Paul was preaching, and after Paul was preaching, um, those in Ephesus became really frustrated because they believed that Artemis is great. So this riot is stirred up, and while this riot is stirred up, Ephesus starts yelling and chanting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, or Artemis is great is actually what the Bible says. So while Paul is preaching Jesus, or finishes preaching Jesus, a riot happens about how great this 
other God is. Now, not only did they riot screaming Artemis louder than they scream Jesus, and how about this? I'll drop this one in here. We scream politics louder than we scream Jesus too. We scream our candidate louder than we scream Jesus too. So we're not too far off, are we? Amen, someone? Or you're mad at me now? Preach. They also had a month-long celebration for Artemis. A month-long celebration for this occult goddess that they made sacrifices with. But as much as Ephesus was known for being a port city in commerce and this goddess of Artemis, it was also known for a little bit more. See, um, Paul was known for teaching at a school in Ephesus. Essentially, uh, he was reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So Paul would go to this classroom or this space in the city, and he would preach or teach daily. Paul planted a church here with Aquila and Priscilla. And um, yeah, God moved powerfully still in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, what's unique about it is it's maybe the first church, or it is the first church mentioned. But why is Ephesus the first church mentioned? I guess people aren't really sure. But some have mentioned that maybe it was the first church mentioned because it was the closest to Patmos. So you can see here on the map on the screen, there's Patmos right there. Kind of like the Caribbean islands. And um, there you go. You have number one, which is Ephesus. So maybe he went around in order because of that, because it was closest to him. So because it was closest to him, he thought about it first. Or maybe he just thought, yeah, whatever. Either way, number one right there is where Ephesus was located. So as we start today... I've been, you know, studying and thinking through. I was reminded of many horror stories about marriages where things from the outside looking in appear to be really good for a family, to be really good for a couple. Yet, then in a moment, one spouse says, I don't love you anymore. Any of you guys ever heard those stories? You just... They, people come to church and they smile and then you see them out in public and they're holding hands or having fun. And then you just out of nowhere find out, I don't love them anymore. You're like, how could that happen? They had so much love. Like they came to church and they served and they were always in the community. How could this family be getting a divorce? See, I rarely get to see or, yeah, I rarely get get to see the whole marriage. You know, we often only get to see what people put on. But what I have noticed is marriage rarely ends in one moment. It's often due to a lifetime of a partner hardening their heart towards the other. Essentially, it could be said marriages end death by paper cut. One offense at a time. And as that one offense builds up, I've seen an illustration of a pastor once. As an offense, 
he would take a two-by-four, and maybe he would make a smart comment towards his wife. So he put a two-by-four in the ground, and then she would make a smart comment back. So then they laid that two-by-four on top, and there was just small offense after small offense after small offense after small offense, and then in the illustration, there was a 10-foot fence after the offenses. See, marriages rarely end in a one-time thing. They often end because of one small offense that was never dealt with over a period of time. Don't want an amen, but at least you're hearing me. You're not, if you've been married, you recognize that, right? Those small offenses, it hardens your heart. And the scary part is we might not even know that we are doing it. We might not even know that the other partner feels that way. So as we study the church of Ephesus today, from the outside looking in, it seems as if things were really good for them. But as God walked amongst them, he knew what was really going on. Even though this church was doing many good things, they were still missing the mark. They neglected the thing that mattered the most. Their first love, Christ Jesus. You know, in marriage, there's so many things that just are irrelevant, that really don't matter that much in comparison to the love that we're supposed to have for that person. But yet we build, in an, we build a fence, an offense. So as we get into the scripture today, Jesus cares and walks amongst, it, amongst us. That's what we're going to see. Jesus cares and he walks amongst us. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. So just remember, the angel of the church is a messenger according to Revelation 120. So the angel of the church is a messenger. So to pastors, to you uh, parents, you guys are messengers. To neighbors, to people who carry Jesus, who know Jesus, we are messengers. Continuing in the scripture, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So what we can't miss here is he holds, which is present tense. He holds his church. This is exciting news for you and I. Jesus is responsible for you and I. He holds us in his right hand. And his right hand means authority. He cares for you and I. He hasn't left us. He's not forsaking us. So he holds his church. And then he walks amongst us. Jesus wants to be around us. You realize that? Jesus wants to be around you? Isn't that just something we have to consider a little bit more often? We often think that we're so horrible. But Jesus wants to be around you. Around you. In the mistake that you made this morning. In the mistake you made yesterday that you're beating yourself up about. Jesus wants to be around you. Jesus isn't absent. He wants to get to know us personally and intimately. And that's why he walks amongst us. He knows what we say. 
what we do, and what we think. This ultimately brings great accountability, though, doesn't it, with Jesus walking amongst us? I remember people often saying, would you, if Jesus was in the room, would you say that? If Jesus was in the room, would you do that? Would you watch that movie with Jesus? Would you go that speed limit if Jesus was the passenger? Scott. (laughs) Would you say that about that person? Would you gossip if Jesus was in the room? Well, what we have to remember is Jesus walks amongst us. So Jesus is here today. And not only is Jesus here today, but when we leave this place, who is amongst us? Jesus. So there's a great accountability. There's a great care. So we need to understand he wants to be with us. He loves us. He loves being in our presence. But we also need to recognize since he's in our presence, there's a great accountability that what we say, what we think, and what we do is in his midst. Because what I recognize is... Jesus um, often would send people out two by two, right? Why? Because there's accountability in that. There's encouragement in that. So there's a lot of things we don't, there's certain things that I might say at home that I'm not going to say at church. I'm not going to act better than or holy or perfect. Now, it's not that I have some weird potty mouth at home either. But when you get around other believers or if I'm by myself, I might say something that, When Macy's there, I wouldn't say. There's accountability, but Jesus is here, and we should be accountable to him and consider him. Amen? There is no sneaking past him. So verse 2, what we should be noting is God saw Ephesus' hard work. He not only saw that, but uh, he saw that they called out evil and that they persevered. So he says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. So he's telling them some good things that they're doing. This church had many deeds, which is pointing to their effectiveness for the sake of Christ. This church was used powerfully in their community. They had deeds, but not only did they have deeds, They also had hard work. So not only did they have the Thanksgiving dinners that they brought, a good deed, but they also had the hard work. They were putting up houses and building houses and being with orphans and widows. There was 26 families plus a few others that were willing to do the hard work to deliver the meals today. Come on, somebody. The phrase hard work in the original language is kapas. It means a beating or intense labor with trouble and toil. This church didn't just complete simple work. They labored vigorously. This church received a beating for their work in Christ. This church received a beating for their effort for Christ What beatings are we receiving? We, as an American church, as a global, generally a global church, are playing it so safe. 
And again, relevant. I had a friend, I shared this a few weeks ago, who said, I know the Bible says those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, but I've never been persecuted. Why have I not been persecuted, Joey? And I said, you haven't been persecuted because you're not preaching Jesus. We have a church that's playing it so safe. And the Ephesus church was presenting Jesus. And when they presented Jesus, guess what? They suffered. So it wasn't just people who were giving money to a missions trip. This was also a church who was long-suffering. Intense labor with trouble and toil. It's hard to think about, isn't it? Are we willing to bring up Jesus and go through hardship and trouble and toil for his name? Because we should be, because it's something we are all called to. Galatians 6, 9, you should remember this. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So do not become weary in doing good. So there's a call for us to do good. 2 Thessalonians 3, 13. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. We are to labor. Now, I'm not pre- what I'm about to say next, I'm not preaching it, but it's a thought that I had to do more discovery on. And uh, I was listening to a couple commentators talk about taking the Lord's name in vain. And based upon their study and their culture, what they were saying is taking the Lord's name in vain has been minimalized within the modern-day culture to using God's name in vain as in saying GD or even just saying God out of context. So that's kind of the way that I was raised is just don't use God's name in vain. And actually what this, these theologians were discussing is based upon their study is taking the Lord's name in vain is not taking the call on your life seriously. And what they were saying is if we claim to be a Christian, Jesus' name, if, if we take on God, if we take on Jesus and his name in our life and then we don't make disciples, then we're taking his name in vain. And that made me say, I have to study that more because I could see that to be true. Isn't that a little bit scary? That we take his name in vain by not making disciples? Man, we need to study the Bible, don't we? Come on, we, we need to study the Bible because if, now certainly I'm not saying we should use God's name in vain either. In, in the way that we understand it or been taught within the American culture. But what if taking God's name is in vain is saying, I'm going to claim Jesus in his name and not make disciples? We better be taught right. I'm not saying we've been taught wrong. But if that's the truth, we need to change. So there is a call on our life to make disciples, to do good works, to not become weary of doing these things. And this church was doing it. Ephesus was doing it. This church persevered. This means that they carried out the work of Christ through persecution. Teaching Jesus came with a price. And this price they were willing to pay. So not only did they have deeds, work hard and persevere, but God saw that they were doctrinally pure. He says this, continuing, 
I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. This church was willing to stand up for truth. They didn't tolerate wicked people. They challenged those who claimed to be apostles. Simply put, it appears that this church wasn't under the influence of the world. As people looked at this church, they had it all together. They were thriving. Works, deeds, persecution, perseverance. Now they're standing up. They're standing up against those who are claiming to be apostles. Now, how do you stand up for someone who's claiming to be an apostle? Well, it always comes down to this. If you guys came up here and you tried to teach me how to throw discus, and I recognized that what you were saying was wrong, I would say that's not true, right? Like, that's not how you throw discus. Good try. You kind of know a little bit about it, but that's not right. I feel like I would have um, a little bit more authority, unless there's some discus throwers in here that I'm unaware of. Uh, you can help me coach this year, right? I feel like I have more authority because I really know it. Not in a prideful way, but I really know it. I've seen a lot of kids throw. I've thrown for a long time. I know it. So if you try to tell me something, I'm going to tell you you're wrong because I understand it. So this church understood who Jesus was. This church understood the message of Christ. And they were able, when people came to try to tell them a different message or a little bit off message, they were able to rebuke it. They knew the word. So then this makes me think about the American church. Is the American church, is Mechanicsburg Christian Fellowship, am I as an individual preaching the gospel? Do I know his word to stand up against false teachers? Am I being persecuted? This church was doing all of these things. They were thriving. But God has, has his eyes on this church. And his eyes saw right through this church. God sees through you and I today. To say, I'm not intentionally hiding anything, but to say everything that I present to you guys as a church and individuals is exactly who I am, God sees through it, right? God sees through you too. He just does. So God sees through them, and, and this is what God sees. God rebukes them for their lack of passion. That's what he saw. That's what he had to rebuke. And he says this, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You had forsaken the love you had at first. I was telling Bible Club about um, when Macy and I kind of first met. And there used to be a thing called MSN Messenger. And um, I would get on MSN Messenger, and Macy would be on MSN Messenger. And 
Um, what do you what do you even talk to someone about? Just stupid stuff, right? But but your affection and you want it, your desire to want to know that person. So you talk, you talk to this person until like four in the morning, right? Just ba 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 ba. And then you got basketball practice at seven. So then you sleep as long as you can, and then you put your jersey on before you go to sleep so you can hop right out of bed. So you go to sleep in your jersey, you get up at 645, you go to basketball practice, and then after practice you're like, I'm ready to take Macy out on a date. So you take Macy out on a breakfast date, right? And then her parents are like, you got to get home. And then later after you drop her off, you're like, back on MSN Messenger, Hey, you want to go out on a date tonight again? And then her dad's like, I'll let you do that. Get her home by this time. So then you take her out on a date, right? And then you get her back on time. And then you're like, can I come in? Are your parents going to let me in? Your dog's really scary. But the dog loved me, so Macy knew I was the one. So I come in. And we sit down and we play Guitar Hero with the family. And then we go home because I'm kicked out, right? And then when I go home, guess what I do? Go right back to MSN Messenger. Talk about silly stuff. And there was this affection. There was this love. There was this passion. There was this excitement. All you wanted to do was be around this person. But then the longer that you're with this person, then you start having opinions and preferences. And what do you mean you don't like sausage better than bacon? What do you mean, woman? But then you still have this love and this passion. But then the longer it goes, you start to recognize, yeah, I love this person, but I'm offended by, I'm offended by, and that off offense starts to grow. But I remember the first love. And now I can very um, boldly say I love Macy more today out of first love than I did then. Because we've been able to break these walls. But first love, how many of you guys remember your first love stories? Your first love stories of meeting your significant other. And what it felt like then. And Macy and I, semantically, I get to date Macy every day. And I probably need to be more intentional, right? I see every day as a date with Macy. She's like, boy, you better take me out to dinner. And tell me this is a date, just not you getting Chipotle. I'm dating you, woman. I'm on a date with my woman. Excitement, first love, first love. And then I think about this. My first love with Jesus. I remember when I first met Jesus. And I was passionate to be in a small group. I was eager to work through a fence. I was intentional about not gossiping. I was combating the thoughts in my mind about people and things and temptations always. Because what I wanted to do was talk to God on MSN Messenger until four in the morning. 
And then I wanted to get up and go to breakfast with him. And then when I went to school, I wanted to talk to him. And then while I was at school, I wanted to talk to people about Jesus. And then when I got home from school, I wanted to study the Bible or go to youth group. There was this first love excitement. And do you guys remember your first love excitement about Jesus? Certainly all doesn't look the same. See, the Ephesian church, they had first love. They had it once, right? And because of their first love, they had the works and they had the discipline. But the uniqueness about the Ephesians was they probably thought that their biggest problems were the pagans who worshipped the things of the world and the government. That's what the Ephesians likely thought was their biggest problem. See, the Ephesian church, what they were likely doing is pointing the finger of the world at everyone else other than themselves. Now I'm preaching if we're actually thinking about ourselves. They were saying, if the government was better... Or if the pagans, or if the world in Ephesus was different, then we'd be a perfect church. Rather than looking at self, they were looking at others. They might have also thought that the biggest issue that they faced was the persecution. Yet Jesus tells them that the biggest problem they were facing was a personal problem with the Lord himself. Their biggest problem was not the government. Their biggest problem was not the pagan people. Their biggest problem was with themselves and the relationship with him. So I was thinking about this. They had good doctrine. They had good deeds. So doctrine and deeds don't determine our disposition. Easier stated... Just because the church believed the Bible and had works, it didn't mean that they loved Jesus. That's why we've seen people end in divorces. You take the kids here, you take the kids there. You cook the dinner. You do the chores around the house. But your heart's far from that person. See, the Ephesus church had the works, they had the deeds, but they didn't love Jesus. They lost it. The church was on the cusp of becoming a church of Pharisees. They were in danger of legalism. They were doing all the right things. So it wasn't a head problem. It was a heart problem. Obedience out of duty replaced obedience out of love. Obedience out of duty replaced obedience out of love. You know how easy it was to serve the church when you had first love? And now a lot of serving the church is out of duty. Let's just be honest. Come on, somebody. And you know, you don't even need to admit it. I've had many seasons. I've been in seasons, even this year, where I've served, served the church out of duty. And true repentance doesn't take place when it's like me too. True repentance takes place when you say, I'm a sinner. So I'm admitting serving the church out of duty has sometimes been an issue for me rather than serving the church out of first love for Christ and his people. 
So how many of us are there today? Let's practice vulnerability. Let's practice honesty. Let's practice repentance. See, because the church of Ephesus was here to help us understand that our hearts are far from God or can be far from God to help us say, I need him. This isn't just here to get us to deep think about maybe who we are. And after we deep think, then maybe make a change. No, God's word brings life and brings transformation. So I ask you again, after I say this, obedience out of duty replaced obedience out of love. So how many of us are there today? Anyone raising our hands? Thank you. Generally speaking, most of us will look at ourselves and think that we are okay, are okay. We feel okay because we compare ourselves to those who are not doing as much as we are for God. Paul told us to not compare ourselves to anyone other than the cross of Christ. Yet we often compare ourselves to the world to justify our goodness. We always look at the extremes. And we as Christians, you know, when it comes to um, the idea of abortion, it feels like the argument is often the most extreme case. You know, what if, what if, a, yeah, I'm not even going to talk about the extreme cases. You guys know that often the arguments about abortion, the opposing side presents the worst case possible that might happen at 0.25%, right? Well, we as Christians do the same thing too. Not with that matter, but what we do is we, we often compare ourselves to the worst of the worst as well. We say, well, at least I'm not doing drugs. At least I'm not an alcoholic. And because we're not doing drugs or an alcoholic, then we feel justified, right? Well, the fact of the matter is we're not supposed to judge and compare ourselves to people who are doing drugs or alcohol. And I just say this, if you guys are doing drugs today, if you guys deal with alcoholism, we love you. You're welcome here. And we also pray that God will set you free, amen? So not picking on you today, not calling those things out. Either way, um, we often compare ourselves to those things, and we justify our goodness based upon a few cases. Now, maybe we don't compare, but we do think we are okay because we can work our way out of a hole. So maybe, yeah, you're not comparing yourself, but you feel like you can work your way out of a hole. We have a nature to think that we can substitute works for intimacy. And that's essentially what the Ephesian church was doing as well. They were substituting their works and their deeds for intimacy. And you don't believe me that we don't have a culture that thinks that they can work their way for intimacy or substitute works for intimacy? Well, um... Think about Mary and Martha last week. I thought Mark did a great job. Thank you, Mark. Mary and Martha. Martha was doing the works. Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. But don't believe me that we feel justified by works for intimacy. Then why do we have a culture where a spouse thinks that they can go buy their other spouse something to fix an argument? Why do we have a culture where 
guys will buy women flowers after an argument and think that that's the end of it. Husbands, that doesn't fix it. Wives, buying your husband something doesn't fix it either. Getting him his favorite Snickers or Reese cup doesn't fix it. But we have a culture that says, if I buy the new car for my spouse, if I buy the new windows that she's been asking for, if we had this disagreement and I buy her $50 flowers, then that'll fix everything. The only way that we fix something is to repent of it. Amen? So when you buy flowers and then miraculously everything's fixed, that means it was just swept under the rug. We have to address the issue. So we have a culture that thinks that if we do deeds, if we do works, then that creates intimacy. My flowers that I've bought for Macy didn't create intimacy between us. But me looking at Macy and saying, I'm sorry, you're right. I fall short. I messed up. That created intimacy. Amen? Love, care, not deeds. See, the problem with us is this, is we think our biggest problem is culture and government just like the Ephesian church. The truth is, our biggest problem in the modern church is that we, like Ephesus, have turned from our first love. First love is the idea of when we first met Jesus. Your life was forever changed. You encounter his love. And his love causes us to respond to life and people and him gratefully, honorably, appreciatively, passionately, loyally. Jesus becomes what we live for. When you wake up, you're happy to talk to him. When you drive in your car, you're happy to talk to him. When you have a problem, you're happy to talk to him. When you're hurting, you're happy to talk to him. When you wake up, you're excited to gather with others on Sunday. And I think this is what the church has abandoned. The church has abandoned their love for God. Which meant they left their love for people. They left their love for the gospel. They left their love for holiness. They left their love for Christ Jesus. That's what was going on in the church of Ephesus. Simply put, they remained loyal to deeds, but their love for God and people trickled away. Trickled away. And for whatever reason, I know it's hard to be vulnerable on a Sunday morning. but I recognize that the church and its love is trickling away. They were going through the motions. They put on fake smiles at gatherings. They never admitted wrong, and their walk with Christ was all a show. They had lost touch with him. So let's practice honesty right now. How many people need a touch from Jesus today? I need a touch from Jesus. 
Now, how many today know that they are being pulled away from their first love? Same thing. How many of us today recognize that we are being pulled away from our first love? My hand's raised. And I'll boldly say this, not in a condemning way. Rather more of a Jesus sees you way. Jesus sees you today. Some of you in here are so calloused that you know you need to admit you're falling away from first love, but you can't because of your fear of man and pride. We have fallen away so far that we're more worried about what someone will think of us rather than raising our hands and saying, I'm falling away from him. God sees you today. The person who that struck their heart, God sees you today. God loves you and God is with you today. The good news is this, is Jesus provides you and I a remedy. Jesus provided the church of Ephesus a remedy as well. And here's um, God's remedy for a cold heart was this, verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So the remedy for you and I today, the good news for you and I, the encouragement, since we've been led astray, since, since our hearts are growing cold, here's how we fix it. We remember, we repent, and we redo. We will remember how far we have fallen. We will repent of how far we have fallen. And we will redo the works we did at first. That's the remedy. That's simple. So remember, this requires us to think about life and the world the way we did when we first met Jesus. This requires us to think about life in the world the way we did when we first met Jesus. Therefore, we will have to change our perspective about people and life once again. It's really hard to change your mind about people, isn't it? It's really hard to change our perspective about life when people get in the way. But what I can no longer say is, God, my perspective will be determined by people. My perspective will be based upon my love for him. Amen? So we have to remember how faithful God has been to us. That's going to help us. Macy had this, uh, in our prayer meeting, she had this, uh, I guess, vision picture that came to her mind a couple weeks ago. And in this picture, she saw... Uh, this person, and while this person, they were in this deep, foggy forest, and they couldn't figure out how to get out, and they were stuck in this forest. So what they ended up doing in this forest is they became really dependent upon God. And while they were dependent upon God, um, God ended up leading them each step of the way, this person. One step forward, one step forward, one step forward, one step forward. Now turn to the right, one step forward. And there was this intimacy and there was this trust and there was this dependence because it's foggy, it's dark, and you don't know where you're going. 
But what ended, ended up happening is the further this person went and depended upon God, um, they finally got to this point where they saw the city. They no longer had to depend upon God. So the moment that they saw breakthrough and the moment that they saw the city, guess what they did? They ran out and they left God in the woods. How many of us have been there? See, we become really dependent upon God when we need him. And then the moment we get the breakthrough, we for forget about him. We need to remember God's faithfulness in the woods. Even when we're in the city. Amen. And when we remember God's faithfulness through sickness, through death, through finances, through anxiousness, through worry, through doubt. When we remember God's faithfulness through dying on the cross and laying down his life for our sins. How can we lose love for him? So what Jesus is sharing to the church of Ephesus is remember how faithful God has been to you. That's part of the remedy. Don't forget his faithfulness. And not only remember how faithful God has been to you, remember how much passion you had when you encountered his love. Remember when Christ was what you thought about all of the time? Remember how thankful you were to be set free from sin? Remember how faithful he was to you through the storm? Remember how passionate you were to come into church and worship? Remember, remember how thankful you were to have a worship team, to have a gathering place? But what ends up happening is our opinion and frustration start to get in the way. And he's saying, remember those things. And he says, when you remember those things, then guess what? Repent. Repentance is turning from sin in our way and turning back to God. In other words, once we remember God's faithfulness, it should cause us to see how far off we have become. How far off have we become? How far off are we from that place of first love? And when we remember that, it causes us to repent. God, I am far off. This causes us to think differently about our sin. It changes our mind from thinking that our good deeds are earning God's favor. One com commentator says this, in calling for the Ephesians to repent, Jesus reminds them that labor is no substitute for love. Purity is not substitution for passion. And deeds are no substitute for devotion. Do not pat yourself on the back for doing things for the wrong reason. We have to repent. We have to repent. Look, it's really easy to spend $23 on a meal for most of us. But did we do that with broken hearts saying there's actually families who don't know Jesus who need a meal today? 
Are we brokenhearted? Are we brokenhearted enough that when we deliver the meal today, it's not going to be how quickly do I deliver it and get home so I can watch football? What does the Browns losing and the Bengals blowing it have anything to do with the rest of our eternity? I mean, I'm a Lions fan, so it doesn't even matter to me anymore. It's easy for me. I mean, Steelers aren't any good either. <laughs> Just giving this meal, spending under $30, does not mean that that's a substitute for having a pure heart before a holy God. And we need to repent of that. Just going through an action. Action doesn't create intimacy. And I remember just as Macy and I have grown in marriage, she would often tell me, just because you're doing something doesn't mean I'm connecting with you. And I didn't understand that for a long time. I didn't understand why me doing all the right actions didn't make her fall in love with me more. Any other spouse ever felt that way? The right action does not always lead to intimacy. So I need to repent where I felt like just because I did the dishes or just because I swept the floor or just because I listened to her conversation, just because, just because, just because meant that I did it with the right motive. You know, it's really easy. It's really easy to buy, spend 20 bucks. It's really hard to listen to someone's prayer request today. And then it's really hard to pray for them tomorrow and the next day. And the next day. So I need to repent that I feel sometimes like I can just purchase my relationship with God. See, we have to remember God doesn't look at the action. God looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is looking at your heart today. God is looking at your heart. And just because you appear something to me or to other believers doesn't mean that we don't have something to repent of. Mark 7, 6. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, hypocrites. As it is written... These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We need to repent. We need to repent. See, we don't need revival. We don't need more money. We don't need more recognition. Um, we don't need more presence in the school at Berg or Triad or West Liberty or West Je Jefferson, or Urbana. We don't need more people in the school system. What we need to do is we need to fall in love with Jesus once again. When we repent of our lack of love for him, he will give us his fullness of his presence once again. He will give us the fullness of his wonder. He will give us the fullness of his power when we fall in love with him again. See, repentance is a change of mind that leads to change of action. So now when we're serving by buying meals and passing out meals, we're doing it for him, not doing it to appear a certain way or to justify 
within our own hearts why we're right with God because we did this. So he says, remember how far you have fallen. Repent of how far you have fallen. And then he says, redo the works you did at first. To restore our love, Jesus tells us about, it is important to do what we did first. When you really love Jesus, what were you doing? What were you thinking? What were you listening to? One area that I have fallen short the past couple years as I've wrestled through my walk with Christ is um, I used to always listen to sermons 24-7, and then after sermons, it would go to worship music. And then after worship music, it was a teaching or a book. And I was possessed in the best sense by the idea of being in God's presence. And then you just start getting offended by people and you start feeling like I've earned a break. So then you start pursuing other things, right? Now I listen to sports radio a little bit more than I should. I don't... um, desire to listen to as many sermons as I used to. I don't desire to read as many books about him as I used to. When I go out on jogs, um, yeah, it's not that I always listen to a sermon. I'll listen to something about the Buckeye sports or how to become a better motivator or track coach. And what I've recognized is I need to redo the works I did at first. Why is it that I don't like to listen to sermons 24-7? Why is it I don't like to listen to worship music right after that? Why have I not, or why am I not doing the things I used to love to do? And it's because I haven't remembered. My heart is being led astray. So simply put, when we redo these works, It's to return to the fundamentals of our faith. We need to pray. We need to study God's word. We need to be involved in small groups and church with other believers. We need to forgive people. We need to change the music that we listen to. Essentially, it's a call to worship him, to be obedient to him. It's a call to purity, It's a call to get to know him. Redo those things. Today, right now, redo those things. Remember, the Ephesian church left their first love. So if we were to say we loved God based upon the fundamentals, do we love him? They left their first love. So if we love God based upon the fundamentals, do we love him? Are we reading the Bible? Are we praying? Having more, having an honest conversation with him? Not just asking? Not just telling him how good he is? Are you having honest conversations with God? Are you worshiping him? Do you desire to obey him? Are you giving? Because you don't trust, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but you trust in the name of the Lord. So you're financially giving. Are you gathering together? Are you prioritizing that? So we must remember, we must repent, and we must redo. That's the cheat code. 
That's the key. That's the secret. I don't like those terms. That's why I'm saying it. That's what God puts in plain sight for you and I. If your relationship is far off and if you know that there's more, remember, repent, and redo today. And he will be faithful. Amen? So this letter is finished with an encouragement and a call to persevere. But you who have, but you have this in your favor. You hate the uh, practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So that's what God was speaking to the Ephesus church. You have a lot of these good things, but you've left your first love. I think what's really easy is group thinking and group sharing. So it's like we can admit to wrong when the whole group is admitting to wrong. And my challenge for you today is will you admit to, will you admit to wrong being the only one? That's repentance. Group think is what put Jesus on the cross. Are we willing to be the only one, the only one that says, hey, I've messed up. I don't love you like I used to love you. And God, I'm willing in the midst of a room of people to do whatever it takes to repent, to admit wrong, to say I need you. Not because someone else is doing it. Look, if I were to say right now, who needs Jesus more, we'd all raise our hands. And if I gave the invitation, if everyone who loves Jesus, please stand up, we'd all do it because it's really easy to stand up when the whole room is doing it. Amen? I'm not sure that that's repentance. I'm not sure that it's not either. I'm not the judge. Why? Because man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. But I wonder, through God's word today, how many are convicted a little bit? How many hear the presence of God speaking to you, speaking to you today, saying, hey, you don't love me like you used to. And there's this invitation. You feel the invitation. You feel his presence saying, I'm pulling you back. I'm drawing you closer. I want you more. Love me. Love me. Repent. Redo. Remember. He's drawing you near. God's not collectively speaking to a church today. He's collectively speaking to individuals. God's speaking to you today. You, individual, by name. God is speaking and knocking at your heart. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. If you want to remember and you want to repent and you want to redo then I'm asking that you respond at the altar. And I know you're saying, hey, look, I can respond in my seat, and maybe that's the case. But you guys remember the story in the book of John that we talked about with a blind man. And Jesus had some spit and some dirt, and he rubbed it on his eyes, the blind man's eyes, and then he said, hey, go wash it off. Go wash it off. I still believe that if that man didn't go and wash it off, he wouldn't have been healed. 
Because the healing was in the obedience. The healing wasn't in the dirt. The healing was trusting God and doing what God said. And God is calling some of you today to... How silly would that man have looked? A blind man with dirt on his face, spit and dirt on his face, walking, trying to find this water. God doesn't always call you. When God calls you, it's not always easy, and it doesn't always make you look good. Are you willing to count the cost in obedience today to say, God, in the midst of other believers that we should celebrate, that people are saying, I want to be closer to you? We should I celebrate that. When I see people genuinely respond at the altar to say, God, I need more of you, I celebrate. Amen? So I ask you this. Are you willing to look like a proverbial fool today? Because God is calling you to more. So I'm going to pray. And you guys can even start responding as I pray. But if God is drawing you, if God is doing something on your heart, I believe the blessing is at the altar today. The blessing is at the altar today. The blessing is at the altar. So, Father, I know that you're calling people to remember, to repent, and redo. And you guys could even respond as I'm praying right now. Father, we, we are far off and we need you. Pray in Jesus' name today, Father, that a special blessing, your oil and your presence, the double portion, that, that your presence would shadow over us, Father. That we would just find a special place with you, that you guys just have conversations with him, just talk to him. There's nothing special that I'm going to do, just you guys have conversations with him. God, I pray that you would meet people right now. Father, that you would meet us as we say, help me repent. Help me give up these things. Help me redo the works that I did at first. Help me remember. So, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would do your work in us. I thank you that you are faithful and you have already forgiven us. But, Father, may you increase the fruit of the Spirit within us. To have first love again. Help us have first love again, Father. In Jesus' name. We're just going to stay here. Remain here. And as God calls more of you up, respond as God calls you. I'm just going to remain here. It's got to be quiet. Maybe a little awkward. Who knows? But just have a conversation with God about first love. Just sense some of the things that you're dealing with. I saw people, um, you know, essentially with their hands just giving giving to God. Like, God, I give you uh, gossip. God, I give you fibs. God, I give you lust. God, I give you lies. And I just saw people offering kind of some of those things. God, I offer you sports podcasts. And I saw people just offering to God some of these things. So God... May we just give you these things and you guys just in your mind offer him. Offer him these things that you're dealing with. Take these things from us.
Father. I even just gave you opinions, preferences, priorities, passions. Father, I just pray in Jesus' name for renewed relationships today. In my perfect world, Father, there's background music and emotions, but in your perfect world, Father, you're just doing work in people right now, and I thank you for that. Do work in us. We haven't done this in a while, but I... Just, um, you guys can remain here as long as you need to. I just kind of sensed, uh, is there anyone who feels like they have a word from God in this moment? Father, help us hunger and thirst after righteousness. Anyone else? Because I am your temple, a dwelling place for you. And Lord, Make my heart a pleasing home for you. And oh, I will live on the altar. And oh, you are worth what you ask for. If you're searching for a heart as your reward, then I am yours. In your house, I will daily live fixed on one thing, to see your beauty. Because you alone are worth more than gold. I'll trade the world for a day in your courts. Because I am your temple, a dwelling place for you, and Lord, make my heart a pleasing home for you. I will live on the altar. You are worth what you ask for. I will live on the altar. You are worth what you ask for. Oh, I want to be the oil. I want to be the sacrifice. I want to be a laid-down lover all my life. I want to be the oil. I want to be the sacrifice. I want to be the lay-down lover all my life. That song has just been so powerful to me over the past while, and I just felt it as a heart cry coming from so many of us. We want to be laid-down lovers. We want to be the oil. We want to be the sacrifice. then as you guys feel led, why don't you come up and lay hands on someone and then we'll go eat. Find someone to lay hands on and pray for them.